Hello and welcome to the menu. This is Monaco's program on the world of food, drink and entertaining. This week we leave the Midori House studios and head to Lebanon. We are in Beirut and witness the astonishing perseverance and hospitality of people in the capital. So what's next after the explosion of 2020 and a deep economic crisis? And what exactly awaits you in this beautiful city if you decide to include it in your future travel itineraries? Stay Stay tuned for the next 30 minutes to find out here on the menu. Lebanon is going through tough times. It's been estimated that most of the country's population lives below the poverty line. But what is special about the Lebanese is their determination to push ahead and enjoy life. While you still can, the locals sometimes point out. And when you go to Beirut, you will come across some of the greatest food, delicious wines and extraordinary hospitality. All that has made the capital one of our favorite destinations in the world. And although news we get from Lebanon is gloomy, numbers do suggest that tourists are gradually returning to the country. In this two-episode special, we will meet many of the local entrepreneurs who have made Beirut's hospitality, food and drink scene what it is today. Our journey begins with Taule Restaurant, a business founded by Monaco's friend Kamal Musawak. The restaurant embodies the best of Lebanon's food culture. Guests Chefs prepare food from different parts of the country every day. The restaurant had to reopen a stone's throw away from its original location after the 2020 blast. The new venue comprises of not only the restaurant itself, but also a covered space where the city's best food market, Souk El Tayeb, takes place every Saturday. I met Christine Kodzi, managing partner of Souk El Tayeb. Sukataya means the literally, if I translate, it means the market of good. But for us, tayyib in, in Arabic has three meanings. It means tayyib good as good taste. It means tayyib as alive. This person is alive, and it also means this person is a good, good person, tayyib. So, the three meanings. It's what we're trying to apply also in our in our regular daily lives, and what we're trying to also you know spread as a vision, you know, uh, throughout today is throughout food, throughout you know job creation, employment of women, youth, etc., and perpetuating the tradition. This is what the farmers market is about: perpetuate the Lebanese traditions in terms of agriculture and produce and food. And in this restaurant, Howley, what's what's amazing about this concept is that that you have basically different days dedicated to different parts of Lebanon and different chefs working here as well. True, it's amazing how actually rich is the culinary traditional of uh, traditions of this country and uh, every day you have different women coming from a different area of Lebanon cooking the specific traditional local dishes of her area. And uh, so let's say Monday you will have a woman from the north cooking tr- typical traditional food from the north. The second day you have the south, the Beka, the mountain. Like today we have Nada, she's from the Beka. A very nice little village called Khirbet Anafar. So it's in West Beka, one of the most beautiful parts of Lebanon. So everything she cooked today, like we have, uh, let's say, 12 different uh, dishes on this uh, buffet menu. 
represents part of uh, of her uh, traditional food. It's home cooked food, okay? So, for example, you have traditional. Uh, Um, how do you say this? Shish barak. I know shish barak in Lebanese, but in uh, in English, so it's like a it's like dumplings filled with meat and cooked in yogurt stew, and we eat it with rice. So it's very good. Yeah, she has this aubergine pate, which is aubergine eggplants cooked with yogurt and uh, breads like grilled uh, Lebanese bread, uh, garlic, and some uh, dried almonds on top of it, and it has to be eaten warm. You have these little, uh, what we call, um, it's dough, purslane. The dough is filled with purslane, these triangles cooked in the oven. Uh, this is like a local wild herb, so now it's the season. It's khabeze. It's like, uh, you say, hibiscus. Some wild herbs, we have difficulties finding the, their equivalent in English. But it's like she, she picks them, you know, from, from the field close to her house. And she cooks them, in, it's like a salad with... Coriander, uh, garlic, and fresh lemon. Amazing. Very good. Here we have a raw. It's it's raw meat, but it's mixed with onion and parsley. It's also something that we eat a lot, like different kinds of raw meat. Lentil salad, a regular fatouche, which is like hummus. It's very typical. It's not specifically from her region, so we always have them here in the on the buffet. Stuffed vine leaves with oil and uh, rice, and uh, it's very good as well. So I know what I'll be having for lunch <laughs> later today. Yes. Christine, obviously, a big part, big part of, of, of what you do over here is also the retail section. Part of the interesting things to feature is the uh, local produce from farmers all over Lebanon, and sometimes they can't come to the farmer's market. Some, some of them don't even have a brand, but they have a very nice typical product that they that they do and we're trying to feature really a, a big um, like a, a wide range of typical Lebanese product that you actually store like every woman should have more or less this in her you know in her uh, pantry so like of course olive oil all from different regions of Lebanon the orange blossom water the rose water that we use you know in desserts or in cooking the sesame seeds the sumac which is like uh, it's a kind of a seasoning the thymes the uh, other all, all kinds of syrups apple cider apple vinegar um, we have sweets as well that are prepared you know home cooked sweets olives all kinds of olives uh, what else the pomegranate molasses jams pastes you know tomato paste uh, chili paste uh, different kinds of uh, uh, preserves like you know the We, we preserve many different um, vegetables like cucumbers, uh, carrots, cauliflowers, etc., uh, turnip. And we also have some crafts f from some, you know, local, locally made crafts. Um, we also have local arak, um, some notebooks, some even beauty products. This one, she does like amazing products. Everything you need. <laughs> Everything you need is here, yes. And in the same complex. Soaps, I forgot the soaps. <laughs> soaps as well. So in the same complex, you also have yes. have a big, big covered space, kind of, kind of a more outdoorsy a bit where the farmers market takes place on Saturdays. Exactly. This, the nice thing about this space is that it can host and it hosting all our activities. So what you see here, for example, on weekdays, is the community kitchen. There will be some noise here. So I see yeah. people eating over here, so this is the community kitchen. Uh, actually, they're not eating, they're preparing boxes for, and they're putting, yeah, stickers on some, like, uh, boxes that we fill 
with food that is being distributed on a daily basis to different uh, NGOs. So we produce on a daily basis to 2,000 meals here in this community kitchen. There are about 50 people working here. Now it's the end of the day almost, so they're all gone. Uh, so every day it's distributed here, 2,000 warm uh, like meals, and it's, uh, it goes to local NGOs in the neighborhood, like very vulnerable people get this food. Two and a half thousand is a big number. What kind of a logistical challenge is that to make it make it happen and to make it work? To make it work, we need different stuff. First, we had to buy proper equipment, you know, because when you do big quantities like this, so we have like a specific kitchen down there with like what you see here, the big boilers, the oven, the kinds of equipment that we use to produce uh, big quantities. We have an amazing team that was trained, like we have chefs, we have uh, ladies who cooks, women, and we also have every day about 20 to 25 daily workers who are actually from very vulnerable areas and it's like a way also to create jobs for these people so that they help us mainly in cutting uh, preparing you know uh, peeling all the like heavy heavy work kind of thing tell me how this community kitchen happened you have been playing a major part in making this happen and you were one of the first organizations or companies over here that were asked to participate yeah actually the community kitchen created after the 2020 blast, August blast in uh, Beirut. It wasn't part of what we do. Usually we don't do like pure charity, but it was out of emergency. We started an emergency kitchen the next day after the explosion because many people like were in need and it was crazy at the time. And after this, for like almost months, we had to produce like 1,000, 1,500. We were supported in the beginning by the World Central Kitchen. They came to Lebanon after the blast and they actually took over a few kitchens. One of the kitchens was ours. And they asked us to produce the food and they were in charge of distributing them like everywhere in Beirut where like there was needs. Uh, unfortunately, the need is still here uh, three years later. Uh, we thought, you know, it was just an emergency. It became a permanent kitchen and uh, we called it Matbakh al-Kil, so the, the community kitchen of, uh, of Souk al-Tayyib. And actually the need is even more now than in 2020 because poverty has like dramatically increased in the country. And uh, so we found ourselves like actually needing to produce more and more meals. Uh, we were also supported by uh, international organizations like the German government, Alfanar, Paces, who really uh, helped us, you know, in buying equipment, etc. You said that you said that you were launching this emergency kitchen. and you were asked to help a day after the blast, but what was your situation in that? I understand that we are in a new location. You lost your earlier location in that explosion. Yes, almost. Actually, we were about to, we were closing down. You know, we were sitting, me and my partner, you know, after the explosion, and we were looking at ourselves, and, you know, we were gonna, we sent everybody home. Okay, thanks God, no one got hurt. But, you know, we had a bed and breakfast, 10 rooms that was completely destroyed. Uh, our kitchen, we could save a few equipment. The equipment were okay, but I mean, the rest was not functioning, uh, shattered glass, etc. So we're just like managing how to shut down. But then we received this call from Jose Andres from the World Central Kitchen who said like, I'm coming to Lebanon. Could you help in producing meals? Because we need people who know how to cook and who can immediately, you know, produce meals. and. We looked at we looked at one and another me and and Kamal and he said like okay we can <laughs> call everybody back and uh, you know just 
prepare the equipment and if you we have ingredients we will cook so we started and f suddenly we were flooded by not only our team was preparing we had a lot of volunteers so women coming to help people from everywhere in beirut they you know put their hands together and we started producing food again and uh, that's how it happened do you think that's something that is such a lebanese thing that you kind of keep it together and look after each other definitely definitely because everything that was happening after this uh thing the explosion was like lebanese people looking after one another of course there was a lot of international aid coming in but it wasn't from the government and everybody was there and i think this is what gives hope the fact that we just started working again and not thinking for like directly after this uh, this, this tragedy kept the hope on like there were people seriously in need much more than us so we can help so there was a reason to live you know and this is what happened with us what do you hope from the future and when, and what are you focusing on at the moment what are the priorities well weird enough the priority is just now to maintain ourselves you know <laughs> but today is very it's very challenging to stay uh, in a business uh, in lebanon so every day new challenges economical socio-economical political whatever even environmental <laughs> so we don't know but it's becoming very difficult so maintaining ourselves is very challenging um, trying to stay on our feet economically challenging uh, not to have letting to let go people is challenging so this is what like, what, like immediate priority but of course in the future Uh, we will. We want to develop through supporting others. So, trying to because there are some. There are funds in a place that want to be put somewhere. There are people who have ideas and small projects, but they don't have funds. And there are people who can make it happen, which is where we see ourselves as an organization. We have the know-how. We have the links uh, to funds. Today, you don't have banks anymore. So, where do if if you have a project, where do you get the money from? You know, there's no investment like it was in the future. You know, people who put money and hope to have a return on investment. It's not like that. So, if we want to keep afloat, we have to bring funds from donors, organizations, sometimes wealthy people in their own area who are willing to support smaller scale projects and develop a network uh, across the country for. Uh, tourism, local tourism, agro-tourism, which is what we have in our, in my opinion, one of the things we have preserved and we can preserve is our culinary traditions and the environment. So we have to continue on doing so to preserve our country. This is this is my hope for the future, not to destroy our country anymore, but to preserve it. Christine Kodzi, managing partner of the Souk El Tayeb food market. There, you are with the menu on Monocle 24. Lebanon has one of the oldest wine industries in the world. It's been estimated that vines have been cultivated there for 6,000 years. Our next guest is someone this program's long-time listeners may recognize. Sandra Sade is the man behind Chateau Marcias, wine that comes from Lebanon's Beka Valley. It was over a decade ago that I spoke to him in London, and when I met him in Beirut, we obviously had to discuss how the past years had been like for the business. 
and what has been going on with Lebanon's wine industry more widely. Well, uh, I think despite the um, the situation in Lebanon, uh, generally speaking, we can say that Lebanese wines are gaining a lot of uh, uh, good um, uh, recognition uh, internationally because of the quality that is uh, getting more and more uh, to the rendezvous. Uh, I mean, uh, we have uh, a good number of good players that are producing uh, interesting wines. Uh, I think the wines also have gone into a direction that is qualitative in the sense of finesse, uh, elegance. Uh, and this is somehow what uh, Chateau Marcias is trying to do. So um, this plus obviously uh, a lot of uh, dynamic uh, visits to worldwide uh, other countries, Far East states, is making Lebanese wines more and more uh, well known, let's say, by, by the general public. What is it like for someone who works in wine industry to constantly work and... I guess you you always have to try to find ways to improve your product. So what has it meant in the last decade? You know, uh, when you're a, a wine producer, I think it's a, the, the kind of uh, a little disease we have is that we always put ourselves into question and always try to improve the quality. So it's never good enough. We, we, we always strive to find uh, other methods to make the wines more elegant, more interesting. It's a relationship that is extremely intricate and uh, it's a matter of not taste, it's a matter of uh, of getting things uh, going better, better all the time. I would imagine that not many people necessarily remember all the things we discussed 11 years ago, Sandro. So shall we recap a few things? How would you introduce Chateau Marcia's wines to our listeners? What What are we talking about? Well, listen, we produce wines that uh, red, white, rosé. We use international uh, um, uh, blends. We don't use uh, local cépage uh, that we believe uh, are uh, maybe at the very, very beginning and need more time to to open up and, and show their true uh, strength. So we're using Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc for the whites, uh, Syrah, Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc for the reds. Um, I really think that our focus is uh, to show the terroir, to show how the wines are reflecting with our touch, our savoir-faire uh, that, uh, that we as the Saade family are, are bringing to Chateau Marcias. If I have to summarize in, in a word, I think what we're trying to do are wines that uh, can age for a very long time, but still can be drank soon and relatively early. So that's, I think, the definition of, of good wines. Uh, you can open them uh, now, but if you keep them for a long time, you would gain in, in depth and, uh, and quality as well. Now that we're doing this interview, it's been, it's been two or three years since, since the huge blast, and I understand that you were very much affected by it as well. Well, we were, uh, uh, my brother Karim, myself and my father uh, and uh, uh, some of our staff, uh, we were in the offices at six uh, when the, the, the explosion happened, the attack as well. So yes, it was a very, very tough moment. We had uh, major uh, uh, injuries. We, we spent a lot of time in the hospitals, like most of the Lebanese living in that area. The blast was uh, something of a major event in our lives. Uh, but as we always say, even though uh, it was uh, extremely aggressive when it happened, 
we have uh, a tendency to get back on our feet, uh, rebuild, reconstruct. But this time, uh, it's a very important thing to uh, fight to get justice and to find what happened exactly. Because we cannot a major event like this just happen again or go through history without our generation finding out what happened. And at the moment, my impression is that it seems unlikely we'll be finding out what actually happened and who was responsible. It's, um, it's a duty. Uh, I don't think we can uh, pass over this uh, and, and how, we, how we say it usually, to overcome it, psychologically speaking, we need to fight for the truth. And also something that tells me a lot about your determination going on with your life and going on with your business is that very soon after, after the explosion you said you were injured, but you also you were harvesting, you went to the vineyards. Absolutely. Um, I was using my sticks to be able to walk. Uh, my father was at the hospital. We were tasting grapes. We were planning for the harvest. You know, the harvest is the single moment in our uh, business uh, life, let's say, in the life of the vineyard that has to be uh, handled. You cannot uh, just let it go. And uh, as much as we're saying perseverance and going forward, it's, as I said, very important to uh, try to understand what happened on August 4th uh, as well. What is your feeling about the future at the moment? How is the business going, for example? Listen, um, very good. Uh, we export the, the wines in 40 countries, approximately, from Japan, Hong Kong, New Zealand, all the way to South America and North America. So um, the wines are doing very well. The tough thing is to handle the day-to-day operation in countries uh, such as Lebanon. That's the tough part. Just finally, what kind of plans do you have for, for Chateau Marcias at the moment? What's, what to expect and what's in the pipeline? Well, hopefully new products, experiments, uh, new plantations. We're going into the production of Arak, which is uh, an anise-based spirit. It's beautiful with, um, with local food. I don't know if uh, people that are hearing this episode are, know what is kibbeneye, it's raw meat. And I think that uh, the only way to eat raw meat in Lebanon is with uh, a glass of arak. Sandro Sade there. Him and his family owned the Chateau Marcias vineyard in Lebanon's Beka Valley. You are with The Menu. Beirut has a beautiful seafront and a new business is playing a great role in both keeping it clean and in making fishing in the waters more sustainable. Balamida sells fish fillets to restaurants and individual customers, simultaneously supporting the local fishing community and giving part of the proceedings to Beirut Coastal Cleanup Initiative that works to clean up Beirut's coast. J.P. Scaff is a co-founder of Balamida. I met him and he began by explaining how the story of the business began. The business started actually only seven months ago in June 2022. And it started, well, actually by passion. I'm a diver, I'm a fisherman. I used to sometimes, whenever I would catch a big fish, I would bring it back home. Tala and myself would uh, cut it, portion it, put it in bags. And whenever we'd be invited out for dinner or lunches, 
we'd take a, actually some fish out to our friends <laughs> and our friends would obviously ask for more fish from time to time. Something that triggered it was last year, I was lucky to shoot actually freediving a record tuna fish in Lebanon, which was 133 kilos that I donated to Matbakh al-Balad, uh, who actually uh, cook fish and cook meals and distribute them to the, to the poor. And from there, we decided to launch Balamida. We provide high quality frozen fish filet and tuna jars and olive oil and vegetable oil to the market. So the interesting thing about Beirut and, and maybe Lebanon more widely is that there hasn't been a culture of fish fillets. It's always been about whole fish. People go and buy whole fish. And the issue was that big fish, when fishermen caught them, they were simply too big and no one wanted to buy them. Yes, exactly. Yeah, there wasn't this. Uh, there isn't the culture of fish fillet here in Lebanon, and also the people are afraid. They they don't have the trust in the fishermen. So the only thing they would buy is like a whole fish that they would see, like even alive, coming out of the water, and that's what they would eat. So very difficult for the fishermen to sell their big fish, a fish of 10, 20, 50 kilos. They wouldn't really know what to do with it. So they would actually distribute it to their friends, people. They would sell it for very, very cheap, and yeah, that's where we came in and. Uh, opened a new market for these fishermen to sell their fish. So what did that opening that new market mean in practice? So what exactly did you do? Now you have collaborated with these fishermen, so you get the big fish. What happens after that? So we received the, the fish in our kitchen. We clean it up, portion it, flash freeze it, and vacuum seal it. And with the tuna and the albacores and the bonito, we take them out. We buy them from them and we jar them. And how is it going with finding customers? I, I understand that there's been a fair bit of excitement in Beirut, at least, when it comes to restaurants. It is. We're selling quite well to households because we gave the facility, actually, to people at home to actually cook simple, nice piece of healthy fish, which they didn't have before. Especially like buying a whole fish and feeding it, trying, trying to feed it to kids is very difficult because of the bones and because well, a whole fish is much more, it's more difficult than cooking a nice piece of filet. And the restaurants also are buying from us. And hopefully the tuna that we just launched two weeks ago is will be able to upscale that and hopefully export it also. So you just launched tuna. What else is going on when it comes to product development? <laughs> uh, some ideas. We have beautiful spices and hopefully we'll do some smoking also. Mackerel also, we're thinking of doing mackerel and sardines in jars. Now, one thing that's important and should be mentioned about your business is, is, is how it's, it's doing good in Beirut. So a part of, of the profit you make, it goes into, into trying to clean the seafront. Tell me more about that. The business, yes, has a lot of social impacts. Frankly, the one I personally see the most uh, important is that the fishermen actually now are encouraged to go fishing for big fish instead of small fish. And of course, the pride of a fisherman is catching the big fish. So now they're, they're encouraged to catch the big fish and they can sell it. So we buy it from them instead of going for small fish. Also, 10% of the profits of Balamida go to the Beirut Coastal Cleanup, which is an initiative that started in June 2021 where a team of 30 workers are paid uh, a, a daily wage to clean up the seaside rocks from all of Beirut. And of course, there's an, another team that go into the public areas in downtown Beirut to clean, and, to clean them up. How much work is there to be done? In the cleaning, a lot. Unfortunately, people litter a lot and they need a lot of education 
and so every Saturday the team is there and they like easily fill up 200 bags of 80 liters of trash. Well, now just just finally, what kind of plans do you have for the future when it comes to this business? When it comes to the business, well, frankly, my dream is to be able to put pressure on the government here through, I don't know, the Beirut Coastal Cleanup and Balamida to do marine reserves along the coast in Beirut. There's many areas here that I think it would be wonderful to have as marine reserves where actually fish come up and uh, lay their eggs during the month of May and June. And I know and I see them and that's where I go diving also. So I know how much fish there is. It would be a dream to have an area protected in Beirut where snorkeling would be fantastic. JP Scaff, co-founder of Balamida there. We return to the same corner of Beirut where we started today. Every Saturday, locals gather at Souk El Tayeb food market that takes place in the same complex where the restaurant Taule is. That's where you find some of the best produce in the city, like Balamida's fish products, or for example, various spreads and jams under the brand name Celine's Homemade Delights. I met the founder of the business at the food market. I have a brand named Celine Homemade Delights. It's all like homemade spreads from spreadable halawa or halva, as you say. Sugar-free jams, nut butters, and chocolate spreads. And also we have like zatar, all kind of zatar. Yeah. How did the how did the story of Celine Homemade Delights begin. How long ago was it and how did you get the idea for it? Yeah, I started at home. Um, I got married and uh, I left my uh, work, which uh, it was uh, at Beirut and I was uh, living so far. So um, I started my work at home. I started like a pastry artist to do cakes and caterings, uh, wedding cakes etc. And when the dollar rate uh, came and uh, Corona and all the ups and downs that that came to our country, uh, I began to make like uh, homemade spreads to have a stable amount of money every month. Yeah. And I understand it's been going quite well. I'm meeting you at Sukil Tayeb food market and, and it's busy over here and life feels quite normal and and I understand that ever since you launched this brand, well, you have international representation now as well. So these products can be found not only in Lebanon, but also internationally in some places. You can find them uh, at uh, Zata Road in the US, some shops uh, there, like restaurants like Eddie Grocer, Itnaya, and uh, etc. We have at Qatar, uh, like uh, Lama, uh, Lama Food Store. And we have a Dubai uh, Picket and uh, Jarra. Uh, they are online also. And uh, here in Lebanon. And soon in Kuwait, yes. How has that happened? I'm wondering how much, you know, when you start something like this, a small scale, relatively small scale business, how did you manage to go international so quickly? When you talk about those hardships and and how you decided to create this this company, it wasn't that long time ago. No, it's five years from now. I started. I started here at Sukatayib. I decided to open to other, uh, to get out from home and spread it to the country. Uh, we began at Sukatayib like every Saturday. Uh, so it's a souk. Uh, 
and then we spread uh, to the shops so many shops known shops uh, in Lebanon and uh, so we've been seeing more this is why we expanded to more other countries. You have quite a list of products, by the way. I'm looking at the list over here in front of me. You have, have chocolate spread. Mm? Yes, 52 items. 52 altogether. So there are so many of them. I wonder, what are your favorites? Can you pick favorites and what should people try? Okay, well, uh, my favorite are, our best seller is chocolate halawa and rose halawa. But my favorite is almond halawa and pistachio butter. They are my favorites. <laughs> How would you use halawa? Uh, you can spread it on a toast or on cakes, uh, or you can have it uh, directly from uh, from the jar. Just eat it as it is. Yes. Um, so fifty something products already in in jars. Um, I'm wonder what I'm wondering what kind of future plans do you have? Do you have any more products in mind you'd like to create? Yes, in the future uh, I'm willing to expand more uh, of my products. Now we have a, we are uh, aiming to uh, do a like a small industry uh, combining uh, my mother-in-law uh, products uh, that are traditional money and ours uh, in a small industry at Beka, uh, our hometown. Uh, so uh, we are willing to expand more uh, products uh, like doing uh, maybe granola, maybe uh, we have so many future uh, flavors to do. Yani. Céline Zabir there. She's the co-founder of Céline's Homemade Delights. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. We return to Beirut next week. The new episode premieres on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday in Los Angeles. I am Marcus Hippi. The programme was researched by Monica Lillis and our studio manager was Callum McLean. Once again, we finish this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. From Lebanon, here is Masru Leila with Radio Romance. Thanks for listening and until next week.